0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, to Radical Philosophy 3CR 8, 5,
1: 5 a. I am now a minister.
2: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. Become courageous by doing courageous acts. Courage is a habit. Mary Daly. You're listening to a live broadcast of Radical Philosophy from Monash University. This is a joint event with the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55am, digital and streaming live.
1: Thank you, Beth. I am—I think the title is um, research fellowship fellow at uh, La Trobe University in Melbourne. I was the editor of the journal that we're celebrating today, and uh, I'll give a short introduction to why we're celebrating it. Mary McCloskey, a philosopher who taught at Melbourne University from 1955 until she retired in 1988, died in May this year. During the 50s and 60s, there were two women in philosophy at Melbourne University. As far as I can work out, there were only a few others in the whole of Australia, and no others in a senior position. There are not as many philosophers women in philosophy today as I think there should be but at least we've made some progress in that direction but I want to say in this introduction a few words about a different kind of progress the way in which feminist philosophers have been changing the conversation in philosophy by reinterpreting the philosophical tradition and by introducing topics that had been largely ignored Many years ago, when Genevieve Lloyd's book on the Man of Reason first came out, or was about to come out, I can't remember which, uh, she gave an address at the Australasian Association of Philosophy Conference. The atmosphere in the hall, with an audience composed mostly of men philosophers, was not altogether friendly. (laughs) She was telling them that philosophy was different from what they thought. She was telling them that the ideal of reason, so central to philosophy, is not gender neutral. She was pointing out that in our philosophical tradition, from Plato to Descartes, from Kant and Hegel and beyond, being reasonable means transcending the feminine. Some of those who listened to her talk were downright hostile. Many found her remarks difficult to comprehend, and I heard all about it after the talk because many of them hoped that I would agree with them. Amen. But credit where credit is due, this soon changed. The philosophical community in Australia soon showed that it was willing to engage with what feminist <coughs> philosophers had to say, even if many didn't agree with many with um, all of their opinions. A mark of this willingness is a special issue on women and philosophy of the Austro-Asian Journal of Philosophy, the 30th anniversary of which we are celebrating today. I was the editor, but the very existence of this issue owes a lot to Brian Ellis, then editor of the journal, Robert Young, Robert Cargator, and others associated with the journal and with the Austro-Asian Association of Philosophy. On our panel are four of the philosophers who contribute articles or reviews to this special issue. The way in which feminist philosophers were changing the conversation in philosophy is evident in this now historical volume. First of all, feminist philosophers discussed issues that had not been discussed before. Indeed issues that had not before been regarded as really subjects of philosophy at all. For example, one of the articles in the volume was by Jan Crosswith and Christine Swanton on sexual harassment. Nowadays applied philosophers discuss all kinds of issues that are important to ordinary people, but feminist philosophers were among the pioneers. Another way in which feminist philosophers have intervened in philosophical discourse is to reinterpret the philosophical tradition revealing biases or absences that had not before been noticed or brought out in the open. Genevieve Lloyd did this in her book, reviewed in the special issue by one of our panelists, Denise Russell. We will hear more about this important book in what follows. Karen Green, another panelist, took on John Rawls, the most important political philosopher of our time, and asked whether his theory of justice is compatible with women's concerns. Feminist philosophers also examine key concepts in ethics and political theory. Equality and autonomy, for example. Questioning whether the usual understanding of these terms is really gender neutral. Feminism is about equality for women, but what exactly does equality mean? This is a subject tackled by Lorraine Code, another of our panelists in her article in this issue. Feminism is a political movement, and so it's not surprising that feminist philosophers have often written on topics in political philosophy. But another way in which feminist philosophers have intervened in philosophical discourses is to uncover basic assumptions about the nature of the self, to question ideas about what it is to be a woman or a man, that is to be a person with a male or female body. Maura Gatons is a philosopher who is well known for her work on the embodied self, And in this special issue, she wrote an article about how two philosophers, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Mary Wollstonecraft, saw the relationship between men and women to culture and nature. Feminist philosophers have reinterpreted the philosophical tradition. They have opened up debates about issues that the tradition has ignored. They have produced new theories and new topics for discussion. They have rescued women philosophers of the past from obscurity. Philosophy is much the better for their intervention. So let us hear from some of the women philosophers who made and are still making this contribution. First of all, Karen Green. She is research fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Karen has written on many philosophical subjects and philosophers. In particular, she is author of Woman of Reason, Feminism, Humanism, and Political Thought, and also Virtue, Liberty, and Toleration, Political Ideas of European Women. And with Jacqueline Broad, she wrote A History of Women's Political Thought in Europe, 1400 to 1700. And she followed this up with the second volume, History of Women's Political Thought in Europe, 1700 to 1800. As these titles indicate, she has been concerned in much of her career with bringing out of obscurity the ideas and philosophies of women of the past, women like Christine de Pizan and Margaret Cavendish, who made an important contribution to the ideas of their time but have been largely forgotten. She is presently working on the views of one of, the, one of these important women thinkers, Catherine Macaulay, who was a Republican historian who influenced the founders of the uh, the American Revolution. Karen.
0: So, thank you, Jana, and I'd like to thank you for uh, having initiated this special supplement of the AJP all those years ago. And also, uh, perhaps we should remember, San McCall, Brenda Judge, as well as Mary McCloskey, and Liz Gross, who were the editors uh, the special editors of the of the uh, uh, issue and sadly only one of these is still alive uh, that's Liz so this supplement uh, gave a number of us the opportunity to publish papers with a feminist slant, which would probably not have been accepted had we just sent them off cold to the uh, mainstream journals at that time. And I guess I thought I'd just remind you, you probably don't realise how much worse things were back in the day. (laughs) Oh, you know, you don't know how bad it was. Um, (laughs) So back in the day when there was a large rump of conservative men such as David Stove and David Armstrong who took the view that feminism is simply not philosophy and who moreover claimed, and David Stove claimed this in, uh, in a published paper, that it's just absolutely clear that women are not men's intellectual equals. Uh, So... (laughs) Um, Or that women are are not men's intellectual equals. Um, So in Sydney, uh, I did my... uh, In Sydney, the philosophy departments had split into the general philosophy department, which was the left-wing department, and the traditional and modern department, which was the conservative department, over the issue of whether Marxism and feminism should be taught. Um, And I was in the conservative, traditional and modern department, uh, writing on philosophy of language, which was what I had uh, done at Oxford. But um, I remember the way in which David Stove used to come into the common room. Uh, He was a great... Uh, warrior against left-wing nonsense and feminism and he would uh, say things like, oh I heard so and so say some stupid thing Um, and in fact make me feel rather uncomfortable thinking about what were the men saying about me behind my back and in the end I uh, sort of ran away from Tratton Mod um, because Armstrong uh, failed to support me for a position Um, And ended up as a casual tutor at the University of Melbourne where I was tutoring um, in a course uh, run by Brian Scarlett on Rawls's theories of justice, which I'd never studied before. So uh, I had to teach myself. Of course, that's a great way of learning, to to tutor in something you've never learnt. (laughs) Um, At the time when the call for papers came out. So at that time, um, I don't think I was really such a critic of feminism, a lot of, uh, of liberalism rather. A lot of feminists uh, were very critical of liberalism and argued that liberalism was based on this idea of an abstract individual. But my reading of Rawls was that if one was a consistent liberal, if one really took Rawls' experiment, of thinking about what sort of society you would want to live in if you had to choose um, from behind a veil of ignorance, not knowing uh, whether you were going to be a man and a woman, what you would choose would be guaranteed equal representation, that is, parity. And I still think that's true, and I think that in a way, it's interesting that the idea that the Constitution might guarantee equal representation for women and men still seems like quite a radical position that isn't really out there in the mainstream sort of thought. Um, So, uh, a little bit later this position got a name, it was called parity, and it tended to be promoted by people who wanted to insist on sexual difference, but actually I think it's a position which is completely independent of whether you are more or less egalitarian or whether you think there's some fundamental sexual difference. Because either having guaranteed equal representation would mean that there was no difference in the laws, or if there are differences that would come out through having guaranteed equal representation, then the situation that we're in is potentially unjust. But actually, now that I'm doing all this work on history, um, I'm uh, a bit more critical, in a way, of um, of the. Uh, Critique of liberalism from a slightly different perspective, because I think that because we haven't read women uh, and we haven't got women in the history of philosophy, we um, the if you like the critique of the standard male texts. doesn't apply to women like Catherine Macaulay who played a very significant role in the lead up to the American and French revolutions. Uh, She was a historian but she was also a political thinker and she was read by uh, the fathers of the American Revolution and by uh, the people who were involved in the French Revolution. And what she said about democracy was that governments that are formed on principles which promise the equal distribution of power and liberty attached to their service every generous inclination which subsists in the human character. The generous plan of universal happiness is adopted, and the common good becomes the common care. So this is a much more, if you like, inclusive and moralistic notion of of conception of why we need democratic liberal uh, societies than, if you like, the the representation that is sometimes uh, offered of... Uh, liberalism. Uh, so, since I think that uh, the history of ideas that we've been taught has been very partial, I'm very pleased that we're now hosting in Melbourne the 16th meeting of the International Association of Women Philosophers which was founded in Germany 40 years ago and where uh, a lot of the programme, or at least a good deal of the programme, is going to be discussed, devoted to discussing the works of uh, historical Women philosophers You're
2: listening to a live broadcast of Radical Philosophy. from Monash University. This is a joint event with the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 AM, digital and streaming live.
1: We are very pleased to have on our panel. Lorraine Code, a visitor from York University in Toronto, Canada. Lorraine was, of course, another of the contributors to the 1986 Women in Philosophy issue. She is a distinguished research professor emerita of philosophy at York University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. In 2005, she was awarded an honorary doctor of letters by the University of Guelph in Ontario. And in 2009, she was named Distinguished Woman Philosopher of the Year by the U.S. Society for Women in Philosophy. She's particularly well known for her work on epistemology. Her book What Can She Know? Feminist Theory and the Construction of Knowledge argues that it matters whether a knower is a woman or a man and that including women as knowers requires a reassessment of what knowledge is. She is author of other books and articles including Ecological Thinking, The Politics of Epistemic Location, And she is currently developing an epistemology of climate change with a grant from the Social Science and Humanities Council of Canada. Lorraine.
3: Thank you. I'm going to be moving in a slightly different direction. Uh, This piece is called who do we think we are, and it's meant to be said perhaps in astonishment, perhaps as a genuine question, perhaps in outrage. The question, who do we think we are, can be posed in multiple diverse situations and tonalities. As I understand it, its origins are in Genevieve Lloyd's The Man of Reason, in the philosophical spaces she opened for thinking about, addressing, and engaging with subjectivities Uh, sorry, and engaging with subjectivities, its ideas and implications have silently influenced most of my philosophical work, and by its I mean the man of reason. Currently I'm situating the question within an ecological framework and speaking it as a challenge, often as an outraged challenge, to tacitly enacted ontological presuppositions that evoke astonished or outraged posings of this very question. Who do we think we are? And there are other, more quietly inquiring ways. In 1986, it would have found itself in more polite territory. Now I'm looking at situations where it is often posed in outrage in consequence of careless or abusive ecological environmental practices. Nor, now, is the we question so specifically a feminist we as it then was. But as I consider it, its origins and effects are in in the questions Genevieve Lloyd Lloyd made possible in philosophical thinking. As I'm posing it, this question is admittedly overblown. It could mean many things. I intend it as an intervention into hermeneutic interpretive deliberations about who we are, as we struggle with questions central to our being and situatedness in the world, in attempting to understand how to engage ethically and politically, in quests to know our knowing and to know whereof we speak. For me, these are questions about epistemic responsibility. The issues that give them particular pertinence now come principally from work on ecological climate change negotiations in their epistemological, ethical, political articulations, and in their particular urgency for women and other others. Climate change deniers tend to work from assu- form assumptions, often tacit, even subterranean, about who they, they or we are, and about how ways of living such single or collective identities can claim respectability for their effects, human, political, geographic, material. Such questions are often invisible in surface debates about preserving the world and behaving well with and toward one another. But the world is many worlds. Its putative saviours are multiple and diversely informed, situated, motivated. Hence, no taken-for-granted epistemological positioning can address these questions that require informed, deliberated responses about the specificities of places, persons and practices. Questions often grounded in particularities, but with universal pertinence. A persistent and often silent presupposition has informed white, western, Anglo-American mainstream scientific and secular inquiry for which the knower is an infinitely replicable individual whose specificity and circumstances are irrelevant to his knowing. This autonomy of knowledge credo infuses claims to know personal and public collective events and policies that shape received wisdom even in information-addicted societies. Yet feminists and other others have consistently demonstrated the situatedness of knowledges, together with their implications for diverse lives, relationships, societies, and places. And still now, in white Anglo-American philosophical and secular circles, a conviction persists that taking subjectivity into Taking subjectivity or and situatedness into account, irrevocably irrevocably compromise objective, reliable knowing, threatening a descent into a pernicious relativism. This challenge too was posed in the early days to the carefully nuanced arguments of Lloyd's *The Man of Reason*. Hence, within so formal an epistemic imaginary, the ideas that such issues are fundamentally ontological, as I'm claiming, there are. May seem to drain meaning from the ideal of knowing well. It may seem that responsible knowing reduces to a vain dream. Yet as divisions between or among ethics, epistemology, politics and ontology begin to blur, and social epistemology claims increasing legitimacy in Anglo-American and so-called continental philosophy, questions about the implications of self, subjectivity and situation for knowing and acting well with their gendered and racial subtexts, claim a new philosophical pertinence. Now, thinking again historically, I want to say that Genevieve Lloyd did not remain alone among Australian philosophers in setting the stage for inquiries such as these. And I want particularly to acknowledge Val Plumwood and her 1993 discourse shaping insistence in a book called Feminism and the Master of Reason but then, too, matters ontological are integral to feminist ethical and epistemological thinking, which urges a radical refusal of what she called the dualistic thought- account of the genuine self as essentially rational and as sharply discontinuous from the merely emotional, the merely bodily, and the merely animal elements. In those early days of ecological feminist philosophy, again following Lloyd, if perhaps at a distance. Questions about subjectivity were just beginning to affirm their nuanced centrality. Contra tacitly patriarchal colonizing practices shaped by clumsy connections between generic capital W woman and and analogously generic, generic capital N nature. While simultaneously a feminization of caring about nature was emerging as a strong undercurrent of resistance to the received view. Hence, Plumwood dissociates her thinking from the rationalist tradition, which she deems inimical to both women and nature, in its silent fostering of alignments between human selves and instrumentalism. She's critical of accounts of ethics and of the self, where reason and emotion are opposed and desire, caring, and love are regarded as merely personal. And particular. Thus she understands the the task of what I'm now calling ecological thinking as a practice of reconceptualizing the human and reconceptualizing the self through a critique of what she calls the egoistic self of liberal individualism, a critique that moves toward a conception of selves in relations. Instrumentalism Plumwood perceived as a way of thinking into a, a way of relating to the world which corresponds to a certain model of selfhood conceived as that of the individual who stands apart from an alien other and denies his own relationship to and dependency upon this other. While I do not applaud all that Plumwood says, thoughts such as these have shaped my current ontological focus on matters of knowledge and subjectivity, confirming the urgency of asking, as I do with my title, just who we think we are. In a group discussion of the Man of Reason in 1986 at the Australian National University, a student asked Genevieve Lloyd who or what she intended situating in the place so long occupied by that man. Her response, which I thought exactly right, was that it had taken so long and so much research to discover him that she could not envisage an immediate replacement nor could one readily be located. Now, I suggest gatherings such as this one, together with many that have preceded it and many that will follow, are slowly engaging in careful processes of finding ways to occupy just such a place. Thank you.
2: and if you've just tuned in you're listening to a live broadcast of radical philosophy from Monash University this is a joint event with the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 AM digital and streaming live